Thank you, Jeff, for that timely prayer. I think we will spend three more weeks, including today in this book of 1 Corinthians, and then on January 31st, we'll begin a new sermon series on the minor prophets, through which we will study the messages of those 12 largely unknown authors in the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Hezekiah, Malachi. Hezekiah is actually not a book of the Bible. (laughs) I just said that to show some of you how unknown many of these authors in the Old Testament actually are. Uh, Most of those prophets we're going to cover in just a week. If you were thinking that was going to take years for us to do. Most of those will summarize the message of each of them in a week. Some will take several. So that's coming up. But for now, uh, we still have work to do in 1 Corinthians. We have sung a song here. I don't remember singing it recently. It was written by Isaac Watts, and it's called, Oh, the Wonderful Cross. And the third verse captures our theme today. So it reads, Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. As an adopted child of God, if I had all the riches of the world. If I had every resource I could possibly have at my disposal, that would still be too small an offering of gratitude to God. It still wouldn't be enough to demonstrate my thankfulness. His grace and Mercy toward me is so amazing that it demands my entire life, my soul, my body, my dreams, my possessions, and certainly, as we will be reminded in our text today, my money and my time. So as we move forward together, remember that this is God's Word that we're reading today. And in God's Word alone, we learn who we are, and more importantly, we learn who God is 
And we learn how we may be reconciled to God. And whenever God inspires the preaching of His Word, the result is His glory and our good. And so we pray that God would inspire the preaching of His Word today. Will you bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, as we listen to your word today, would you fill our minds with truth? Will you fill our hearts with affections? And would you move our wills to love you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find today's text on page 905. Some of you are still thumbing through your Old Testament. Are you sure Hezekiah is not in there? Trust me, it's not. Uh, This is the end of Paul's letter. We have finally made it. This is the 52nd sermon. I think it'll be 54 sermons when all is said and done. Uh, By the way, if you had forgotten, this is the longest book. This is the longest letter of the New Testament. And Paul is wrapping things up in this chapter. And he's wrapping it up by unfolding his future plans for the Corinthians, at least as far as he knows them. And it's very helpful for us. Because as we listen to Paul's correspondence, we learn how he thinks about a Christian's stewardship of his time and money. So while there is no formal teaching in this final chapter, we get insight into how Paul thinks and into how Paul lives. And it provides us with an example of how we want to think and how we want to live. Stewardship. We're going to read how Paul, at least, how he stewards his time and his money. And stewardship means responsible oversight. Stewardship is responsible oversight. We've all been given time by God. Most of us have been given money and we must be good stewards. We must be responsible overseers. That is, we must use the time and the money that God has given us for the good of others and for the glory of of God. And so there is great insight right here in these next two paragraphs. First, in verses 1 through 4, Paul gives some directions on how the Corinthians should set aside money to help suffering Christians in Jerusalem. And we will be given insight into how Paul uses and handles money. 
And then second, in verses 5 through 9, Paul declares his immediate and his future plans regarding ministry. And we will be given insight into how Paul spends his time in the present and how he plans his time in the future. So this is very practical. Because again, we have money and we have time. And we need to figure out how to spend our money and our time in the present. And we need to know how to plan for the future. And we're going to read and see how Paul thinks and how he plans. So the application is as we go. So be thinking in the back of your mind and evaluating what you do with your time and what you do with your money. So let's begin with verses 1 through 4. Let's look at this first paragraph and let's think about the stewardship of our money. Verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. So that is the issue at hand. This is, as Paul says, the collection for the saints. The Jerusalem Christians, we know that's who he's talking about if we look at verse 3. The Jerusalem Christians, they were in need, though we're not explicitly told why. We know from Acts eleven twenty eight that there was a famine, and we know that they were under a degree of persecution. But whatever the reason, they had physical and material needs, and there was this collective effort of churches throughout Asia to support them, which is a very good use of money. Proverbs 21.13 Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Where Paul writes in Galatians 6.10 So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is, let us do good for others, especially Christians. Especially those Christians who may be in your local church. And what is Paul calling the Corinthians to do? Support other Christians. You have plenty and they are in need. That's the issue. And so next... He gives instruction. Verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Well, Paul answers several questions in this verse. The first is when. On the first day of the week. So this giving, it was an act of worship. That's what the Corinthians would have been doing on the first day of the week. The same thing that we are doing on the first day of the week. So this giving was meant to be an act of glorifying, honoring, worshiping God. What about who? Who should give to this cause? And what is Paul's answer? Everyone. 
on the first day of the week, each of you. Paul expects everyone, whatever the amount, to give to this cause. And then if we look closely, Paul gives a couple more details. This giving should be done privately and proportionately. Privately. He writes, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul does not want them to pass an offering plate when he's there. This is not necessarily the norm in many churches today. Paul does not plan to come to Corinth and then stand up before them and play a slideshow of suffering Christians in Jerusalem, make an emotional plea, and then stare at them as this basket is passed through their congregation. That is not his plan. This is something that is between them and God. And so he wants them to take care of it privately before he even shows up. But also proportionately. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And that phrase means in accordance with your ability and your means. He says something very similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. For if the readiness is there, that is the readiness to give, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So this giving should be done privately and it should be done proportionately. And then finally, in verses 3 through 4, we see Paul's commitment to prudence. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul is committed to avoiding even the appearance of financial impropriety. Read these verses. It's very wise. He's not coercing the Corinthians into giving. And then once they have given, he's not even going to touch the money. He will commission a team that the Corinthians themselves have chosen to carry the funds to Jerusalem. So to summarize what Paul is advocating in these four verses, he wants each of the Corinthians to set aside money in proportion to what they have to support Christians in Jerusalem. Which of course reminds us that the money we have belongs to God. Any money we have is ultimately from God. 
Any money we have is therefore for God. And how do we express our love for God through the use of our money? And that is by loving others. That is by looking to give to others. So if you're not already, ask yourself the question. How do you handle and use money? Consider this. How do you use whatever money God has given you? And the way you use it, what does it reflect? If someone were to look at your checkbook, if any of you use checkbooks anymore, if someone was to look at your transactions, what does it reveal? Would it reveal a love of yourself? Or does it reveal a love of others? Does it reveal a love of yourself? Does it reveal a love for God? These are great questions for us to ask ourselves. So that's what Paul has to say in this first paragraph in regards to the collection for the saints. And we are reminded, aren't we, of what it means to be good stewards of our money. So let's move on now and see what Paul has to say about his immediate and future plans. So let's read verses 5 through 9 and think about the stewardship of our time, which is even more valuable, believe it or not, than money. The time that God has given us. How will we spend that? How will we steward that? And I think it's fascinating to read these verses and to read about how Paul figures out how he's going to spend his time today and how he's going to plan his time in the future. Let me read the paragraph and then we'll work through it. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So look, we have Paul's future plans in verses 5 through 7, which are to visit the Corinthians. And we have his immediate plans in verses 8 and 9, which are to stay put until Pentecost. Do you see that his future plan is tentative while his immediate plan is much more certain? 
he's pretty clear on the next few months. He knows what he's going to be doing today and tomorrow and in the weeks to come. But the future, the next couple of years, is less clear. Can you relate to this? Let's look at his immediate plan in verses 8 through 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. You hear the certainty. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. You hear his commitment. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul is writing this letter from Ephesus. That's where he is right now. We have the luxury of being able to go to the book of Acts. We could read about his ministry there as he's writing in chapters 18 through 20. And regarding his immediate plan, he has decided that he's going to stay put in Ephesus until the Jewish festival of Pentecost. Well, why? As he makes his plan, why is he deciding to stay put for this period of time? Is the weather nice? Is it comfortable? He gives two reasons in verse 9. First, God had opened a door. God had opened a door for effective ministry. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Paul didn't open this door. God opened this door. Paul did not want to leave Ephesus yet because it was clear to him that his ministry was bearing fruit. Now, it's not always easy to discern whether or not your work is bearing fruit. Parents, you know this. It's not always easy to discern whether or not our work is bearing fruit, but that is a very important factor as you think about how to steward the time that God has given you. It's what Paul does. And I think that first reason makes perfect sense to us. Paul is staying put because there is ministry success. But his second reason is shocking. Isn't it? Let's read the text. His second reason is surprising. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and... Here's the second reason Paul is staying put. There are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. For Paul, 
the adversaries were affirmation that he was on the right track. The difficulty, and go back this afternoon or this week and read Acts 18 through 20, so you have an understanding of the kind of difficulty and obstacles that he faced. For Paul, the difficulty was not a reason to quit. It was a reason to stay put. There is so much we could say about that. There are so many other scriptures that we could bring in alongside this reason that Paul gives. At the very least, we can say this, and we can say it very clearly, that Christian hard is never a reason to quit. Hard is never a reason to quit. As you steward your time, as you think about how you will spend the time that God has given you, and as you make your plans, please do not choose the path of least resistance. If you have become a Christian, you have not chosen the path of least resistance. Difficulty is never a reason to quit. It's never a reason to quit your marriage. It's never a reason to quit your kids. It's never a reason to quit a relationship. Your church a job, school, sports, a task, a project, life. God beautifully illustrated this for me this week when I was having a conversation with my wife and our oldest son Peyton and she reminded us that if hard was a good reason to quit, we never would have adopted Avery and Reed. Hard is never, for the Christian, a reason to quit. Using your time for the good of others and the glory of God, you need to know this. It will mean suffering. There's just no way around it. If you choose to steward your time the way Paul did and use it for the good of others and the glory of God, that is going to mean suffering. And you must, as Paul did, push through by the grace of God. Okay, finally, let's look at verses 5 through 7 and hear how Paul talks about his future plans. Some of you 
are planners. Some of you are not. As we'll see, it is good to plan. Paul planned, but there is a way that the Christian should talk about the future. And there is a way that a Christian should think about their plans regarding the future. And we're given great insight here. Listen to it. I'll read it again, verses 5 through 7. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And there are two things that I would like us to see here. Do you see in Paul's thinking about the future, that there is certainty here and there is a lot of uncertainty. Some might even accuse Paul of being wishy-washy when he talks about his future plans. So first, do you see that Paul is certain about his desires and his intentions? And so, too, we can be certain about our desires and our intentions. Listen and look. I do not want, that speaks to desire, I do not want to see you now just in passing. He says, I hope, that speaks to desire. I hope to spend some time with you. And then listen to his intentions. I intend to pass through Macedonia. And he says, I will visit you. Those phrases, they speak to his desires and to his intentions. And they are very clear to Paul. What he wants, what he desires what he hopes, what he intends, is very clear in Paul's mind, and it should be clear in yours. But second, less clear is God's providence. You remember what God's providence is. God has a plan. God has a decree. And providence is the unfolding of that plan. And you usually know it when it happens. Oh, this is God's plan. And how do you know it's God's plan? Because it's happening. And God is sovereign and God is in control of all things. And our God is in the heavens and does all that He pleases. And is constantly working in and through and around your life. And so his plan is always unfolding. And Paul, frankly, has no clue what God's providence is going to be in the future. And neither do you. You just, you don't know what God is going to do. Your desires are clear. Your plans are clear. Your intentions are clear. But we just do not know God's plan. And he expresses that, doesn't he? He is uncertain of God's future providence. He knows 
that God may redirect his plans. And so he says at the end of verse 7, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. This is how Paul has already talked to the Corinthians about the future. Back in chapter 4, verse 19. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. It's what he said to the Ephesians in Acts 18, 21. But on taking leave of them, Paul said, I will return to you if God wills. The author of Hebrews expressed the same uncertainty in chapter 6, verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. Do you hear these apostles? Do you hear these authors at pain to express their uncertainty regarding the future? James flat out instructs us to plan with this mindset. In chapter 4, verse 13 and following, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Leon Morris writes, Paul is the Lord's servant. He must go where the Lord wills. All his plans must therefore be subject to the condition that the Lord may intervene and direct him elsewhere. It's interesting, guess what? Paul's plans will change. And he will not get to Corinth when he thinks he's going to get to Corinth. And the Corinthians actually get bent out of shape. And they accuse him of being indecisive. He'll end up writing another letter, 2 Corinthians, before an extended visit with them. And he has to defend himself in the first chapter by basically saying, Look, the plan changed. God redirected my steps. But then he makes this point, and it is for your good. It's always for our good as God directs our steps. So the same is true for us regarding the future. Like Paul, we can be certain of our hopes and of our intentions and of our plans but we are ultimately uncertain of God's plans. So what do we do? Well, as Paul did, we make our plans. Is this an excuse to just throw our hands up and not think about the future and not plan? Of course not. What is Paul doing in this paragraph? He is making a plan. He has desires and intentions and he's figuring out how he's going to do it. But then, and this is the important part that this text speaks to, 
we must gladly surrender our plans to God. We trust God. Faith. We believe Him. We trust Him. And we know that though we make our plans, He will direct our steps. Let me read you three scriptures. Proverbs 16.1 The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.9 The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, if that is hard for you to do, to surrender your plans to God, you must remember that God's plans for you are always better than your plans for you. Sometimes God's providence and His plan for us is more painful than we would have expected. Sometimes it is easier than we would have expected, but it is always, always good. It is always the perfect best plan. Jeremiah 29.11 I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Isaiah 25.1 I love this text. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Aren't we glad that God has changed our course at times? Have you been a Christian long enough to be glad that God didn't answer certain prayers? Aren't we glad that our every wish has not come true? God's plans are better than our plans. Which enables us to do what Paul does. And to entrust our future to God. In conclusion, would you consider these things? I know most of you probably are already. And the Holy Spirit is helping you to discern and understand what this word says and how it applies to your life. But would you consider how you steward the money and the time that God has given you? Do you think about what God has given you? And do you think about how not to use it for your good, but for the good of others? Are you motivated 
and enabled to do that by the gospel. Do you know and believe that Jesus came and that he lived and suffered, he died, he rose from the dead in your place so that your sins could be forgiven, so that his life could count for your life, his death could count for your death, and you could be reconciled to God to live with him and for him forever. When you know that, when you believe that, your desires change. You want to spend this life for God. You want to give this life for others. You understand what God has done for you. You understand what God has given you and you know that it is not for you. It is so that you may love Him and love others. To love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us to apply this word as we think about what you have given us, ranging from our money to our time, as we think about the future, God, let us not forget that everything we have is from you and it is for you. And may we learn more to express our love for you and our devotion to you by giving what we have for the good of others. As we turn our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son, may you be glorified as we remember and celebrate and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's together remember and proclaim the Lord's death today. If you're visiting with us and you are a Christian, you have believed this gospel, you have turned from your sin and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are committed to him and his church, whether it's this or another local church that preaches the same gospel that you've heard today. If that describes you, then you're welcome to take communion with us. Let's peel back this first layer and take the bread. 
And remember that this bread is a symbol of the body of Christ. Let's take and eat this together.